Eric. Through the course of making these episodes, we've covered a wide range of topics, as I'm sure you know. Oh, yes, we have. Some of my favorites involve some scientific discovery that led to this amazing story, like the SoFar Channel or the GPS one, which you were both on. Yes. There's those kinds of stories that ended up having very clear uses and applications. Say someone was endeavoring to discover this one thing or prove that it could be possible, and then they were like, I'm going to use it for this purpose. I think one of the first ones you talked to me about was making pool balls invented plastic. So like, yeah, yeah, we've covered a lot of ground. Mm, we have. But then there's this other type of scientific research, like something that involves the James Webb Space Telescope that took over 25 years and $10 billion to make. And all it'll do is just look at stars really well. And I suppose people might think, why are we spending so much money and time on just a good telescope? Why are we spending so much money and time on just a good telescope? Yeah, why are we? Well, I I wanted to address this issue because it is so often the case that I hear that there just isn't a good application for whatever research or discovery is going on. Um, but that is missing the point of why we do physics or you know any kind of scientific research. And I guess that's what I wanted to talk to you about today. All right. I have two stories for you. The first one involves the discovery of nuclear fission. Okay. In the early 20th century, people were fascinated by this idea of radioactivity since it looked like certain rocks just sitting there. They would lose mass over time, and we know that now to be radioactive decay. Then around 1934, there was this group that was able to make their own radioactive material, which was something new at the time. Uh, all they did was take some uranium, hit it with a few neutrons, and then all of a sudden you have this radioactive thing. Is that the first instance of enriched uranium? I don't think so. Uh, this is like very early stages. People weren't even thinking about that. Oh, so sure. like, the thing does a thing, so this is cool. Yeah, that's right. It's a thing. It's, I don't know what it is, but it's a thing. We made it do something. Yeah, okay, I gotcha. <laughs> At the time, we didn't really know of any heavier elements than uranium. And the, the people who made this thought that, or I guess everyone thought that uranium was just the heaviest thing out there just because you couldn't find a rock made of heavier stuff. But then these people thought that they might have done it. They've performed some alchemy and transmuted uranium into transuranium. It's bigger, stronger, and heavier, which is... A bold statement at the time. This thing that loses mass got heavier? Yeah. Question mark? Heavier in a very distinct way. I mean they didn't they didn't turn lead to gold, but like that that's pretty cool. Yeah, they they, they turned uranium into transuranium. So they they made essentially Neptunium, plutonium as we know it now, but they didn't know it at the time. Even though they made this claim, it was very bold, and a lot of people didn't believe it. And there were these two chemists, Lisa Meitner and Otto Hahn, that were less convinced and thought they'd try to do it themselves. Ooh, ooh, a, a good old-fashioned study replication. After years of work, and w one of them needing to flee to Sweden due to the Second World War, the group thought <laughs> they, would ac they actually found something like nuclear fission. And so, and so that, that's the idea where you have one large atom, it's, it splits off, breaks into two similar-ish halves. Which the U.S. had to have done 
in said World War Two. Yeah, uh, this was actually before the start of the war. Oh, the replication was interrupted, right. It, it wasn't interrupted. Uh, one of the people, Otto Hahn, he was German, so uh, he wasn't actually bothered by anything. Or, or sorry, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> that is not the best way to say that. His research wasn't directly affected by it, so he continued on with his work of probing this transuranium. When he brought forth the idea of nuclear fission, it was something completely new. It was like radical. Honestly, most people didn't believe him at the time until it was recreated uh, later on. Only then did people think, oh, it's actually possible for an atom to spontaneously break in half into two different things. Yeah, I can see how saying that for the first time would make you sound pretty crazy. And, you know, we know now the, the significance of that, but Han initially, Otto Han initially thought it wouldn't really be much of a useful thing. And he was just doing it because he wanted to prove the guy who made transuranium wrong. And that's that's really the only reason he uh, he and his group kind of probed this. This guy's lying. I'm going to set out to do this elaborate experiment to prove it. Oh, God, he's right. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. It's just he, uh, he, you know, did more work, added more details. And so he's accredited with this this discovery in a way. Resent it the entire time. I can't believe I get credit for this thing I was trying to disprove. Ah. But no, no, seriously, like, that's how it should work. That's a very great example case for how replicating studies works. Yeah, it is. It would be nice if it were done more often. Although, it, although in certain circumstances, like the m most important t types of discoveries, it is. Uh, something nuclear, yes, should, should definitely be. <laughs> the people in this story didn't think of the significance of what they were doing. Like, the thought of, hey, I guess we could make nukes with this stuff didn't really pop into their head. It was just a desire to accumulate more knowledge and possibly prove other people wrong that led to the idea of fission at this point. <laughs> the true motivator, proving somebody else wrong. Yeah, they're trying to win internet arguments, so they spend years of their life doing this. It feels like that, but in, like, the book era. Like, it's gonna take you ten years to publish, so, like, you got a lot of time to make it, like, prove that it works. Of course, we can put these discoveries into a larger context. We have the privilege of hindsight. They didn't at the time, of course. They couldn't have known... You know, this this idea of fission is, is, at least in uranium, could actually be significant to our lives. So you you might have heard the name Han. Have you heard of it? Otto Han? Uh, in our conversation today, Okay. I, I can't remember hearing it outside of this. He is most associated with this discovery. But decades later, people started looking more closely at the story and thought that Meitner, the, the other chemist I brought up, Lisa Meitner, who had to flee Germany, was airbrushed out of this story because, one, she was a woman and Jewish. I have heard of that happening uh, historically quite often. Even more so because she had to flee and not be present for certain things. Yeah, it, it wasn't only the fact that, you know, she was a woman, I, and I suppose, uh, especially at the time, was less respected. But, like, had to run away from literal war. Yeah, that does not make studying anything easy. Yeah, no it doesn't. I think that's something that should be noted whenever you hear about some discovery being made, even to even nowadays. 
there's real people behind it that that are just like anyone else and most of them are doing scientific research because it's interesting to them not because they're going to make a bunch of money from it yeah absolutely so that's one story the other one i want to talk to you about is on the telegraph machine thank you for giving us a rendition of a a bit of morse code yeah anytime uh, there were early instances of messages being sent using electricity through a wire around the late the late 18th and early 19th century. But the first long-distant, consistent version was made by one Francis Ronald in Britain. He was an electrical engineer and put his skills to good use trying to make new things with this electricity thing. This guy, uh, Francis Ronald, he specifically set out to send messages from one point to another. So it's different from the whole fission thing because the inventor made a conscious effort to make this one thing, not just prove something wrong. But he didn't have the luxury of a grant or anything. Uh, it was just a guy trying to invent this thing. Nothing wrong with that. Some good old-fashioned inventing. And his, his main goal was to transmit a message over a long distance of wire. Uh, what better place to do your science experiments than your mom's backyard? I'm sure she was thrilled about it. You better clean all those wires up before dinner! <laughs> so he made some contraption that looks like this. And I'll post this picture on our Twitter, so be sure to follow us at More Abstract. Okay. He put that in his mom's backyard. She hated every second of it. I'm not even... <laughs> no questions. So you can see at one point uh, in this picture, there's a left and right end of this thing that's put on a wooden stand. So that would be someone sending a message to getting the message, and then there's eight miles of wire in between them. Oh, this is a lot more complicated than I thought. Yep, just think, there's eight miles of wire between two ends right there. How big was his mom's backyard? Uh, well, I think they lived in some kind of manor in Britain, so I assume large enough. I mean, it's not eight miles straight, but, like, that's a lot of iron. It is. It's a lot of iron. On the sides, there's parallel wires, and there's a tiny uh, connection between them. Is that just, like, physically stabilizing them, or is that, like... Yeah, that's to keep them separate so it doesn't short-circuit. Okay, that makes sense, especially if the wind starts blowing. He was very successful with his work, finding that you could send a message over this eight miles of wire... And, and it being coherent. A lot of the other times, they found that you could only send it to the next room, and, or, and after that point, the signal would degrade. But he found a way to get it to be a solid message. Yeah, that just looks like open wire. There's no shielding or anything to keep it isolated from any interference, too. He actually did put shielding on it. I oh. think that was one of the new things that he did. He put shielding. Sorry, hard, hard to tell from a black and white picture. So that is amazing. He knew immediately that he had something great on his hands. With that in mind, he went to the British Royal Navy and told them of his amazing invention that lets people communicate over vast distances instantly. Something you could imagine would be very useful for any military. Absolutely the first thing I thought of. I guess it's, it's to be fair, you were a Marine, so yeah. <laughs> Navy. And the Navy told him this was basically useless. What? After all, if you wanted to send a message, you either get on a boat or send a messenger on a horse. Why do you need to spend all this money to build this big, 
possibly dangerous contraption, whatever it does. Instant. It's instant. Instant. It's, it's, it's faster than your ramen. Ah, uh, you know, they could wait a couple of days. It's not like it's urgent or anything, right? Right? Wrong. Absolutely wrong. And sadly, it took a couple decades after he was able to get it to be commercially used and even longer for it to be widely available. Again, with hindsight, we can clearly say the Admiralty was wrong in their decision, but people at the time have no way of knowing what will be useful and what will be a complete waste of money. Having your own PA system on your boat like that is a big deal. Hindsight, right, but like, how did they not see like giving an order from where you are to the entire ship at the same time? I don't know. I, I, it's just, we have hindsight, so I guess we can't really think of what their version of common sense would be. I could spend all this time building and installing and doing all this, or I can just tell this person that will tell that person, that will tell the other person, and then the, the same thing happens. That, that's what I imagine uh, the Admiralty was thinking. Yeah. And that's the main thing I want you to take away from these stories. When people make these scientific discoveries on the bleeding edge of our knowledge, our collective knowledge, the thought of what can I do with this isn't the first thing to come to mind, or people don't exactly believe it because it's so new. Yeah. I'm glad that there's, um, well, not glad that it happened, but glad that you have instances in history where this fantastic idea was like, brought to them on a silver platter and they're like no we don't need it i wonder uh mrna vaccines they were around for probably a decade or so before being used right that's that's what i understand i wonder if you know this whole thing didn't happen would they be in use i guess it's the same thing a good question or would we have to wait another 10 years until the next influenza pandemic or whatever but anyway most of the time the motivation for doing science is we don't know this thing. I'm going to spend years of my life to answer this one very specific question. So I guess that's why I wanted to tell you about this, because the James Webb Space Telescope is supposed to be a huge step forward for astronomy. And I suppose when people question what the practical applications of it, they're asking the wrong question. Yeah, very good way to make that point through those two allegories. I should also say, in my experience, the people who choose to do this scientific research aren't doing it for any monetary gain. For someone to struggle for years to understand this one very narrow topic, it takes a lot of dedication and that only happens when someone is truly fascinated and interested in their work. And committed. Yeah. Dear Lord, committed. It's a lot of work. That's basically all I wanted to tell you. We don't really know what scientific endeavors will be applicable because we're researching something that we just don't know yet. And we don't yet have the privilege of hindsight. The first people that looked at the stars and started following their trends probably never thought of cartography. They were just like, that's, that's a neat piece of the sky right there. Let's name that Scorpio. It looks like a scorpion, right? Yeah, close enough. <laughs> There's Orion's belt. Yeah, well, Orion was gaining a few pounds, so he put his belt on the stars. <laughs> <laughs> Though, out of those two stories, what did you think about this? 
you picked a very good way to reframe the question of why we have this new telescope. Well, if you like this episode, please consider subscribing or following. We have some supplementary uh, content, so you can follow us on Twitter at More Abstract, and you can find more episodes wherever you get podcasts.